Hello and welcome to this University of Brighton podcast, the first of 2020. Our guest this week is Dr Nick McGlynn of the School of Environment and Technology, who discusses his research into LGBTQ communities in both rural and urban areas, his ongoing bare space project, and his high energy teaching style. Enjoy the podcast. Well, let's start with your University of Brighton background before going into your, your research and, mm-hmm. and teaching. Um, you completed your PhD here, uh, which we'll discuss a bit later in 2014, mm-hmm. right in saying. Um, and you're now a lecturer in the School of Environment and Technology. Uh, how did that kind of jump come about then? Did it seem like a natural fit to stay here? Was there a timely opportunity or how did that happen? Oh, uh, <laughs> that's quite a difficult question, I suppose. I suppose it, it is quite organic in the way that it happens, a kind of mixture of... Um, putting the work in and happenstance, really. Um, So I've actually been at the university in a variety of different roles since, uh, oh, I think since the beginning of 2009, when I started out as a a research assistant on a project. Uh, My supervisor, uh, who is Professor Kath Brown, uh, who's who's no longer at the university now, uh, she um, liked me, we got on very well, we had a good kind of academic rapport together, and uh, she um, got me onto a PhD programme here. Uh, That went well, and during that time, uh, Kath, uh, got me to do wee bits of teaching here and there, which uh, I was I was very very happy to do. Um, I always think that that's such an important thing for PhD students to get a bit of a taste of that. Mm. Um, and then uh, I worked with Kath on a few other projects uh, after I graduated, and then Kath became pregnant and she went away maternity leave. And Kath's teaching in in geography, which is the subject we're both in, uh, focuses around issues of gender and sexuality, and that's also my my background as well. So I was very well positioned to uh, cover her maternity leave. Okay. Um, and then immediately after that, uh, Kath ended up uh, leaving the university and um, moving back to Ireland, which is, is her home. Um, and then again, I, I was in a very good position to uh, pick up her, her teaching, and uh, I was delighted to do that um, okay. because I've been at University of Britain for a long time. And uh, the, the university, certainly my, my department, has, I think, always treated me very well. Okay. Um, and so I was very happy to stay here. And I, I love Brighton as well, so I'm very happy to stay yeah. in Brighton. Well, I was going to partly ask that as well, why Brighton? Because I know you are in London doing your MA before then, and yeah. then was it St Andrews for the BA? I did my, my BA in St Andrews, yeah. Okay. Um, so well, t- technically uh, technically an MA, because we do four years in Scotland. Oh, uh, right, right, okay. <laughs> uh, but it, it, that was my undergraduate degree, yeah. So you technically have two MAs? Right. Uh, I've got an MA and an MSc. MSc, sorry, okay. But, <laughs> I yeah. mean, th- that that doesn't doesn't matter, I think. Okay, but the the link with Brighton was mainly due to the, the supervisor you mentioned. Also. Yeah, the, the link with Brighton was um, that research assistant job. Okay. Is, uh, when I graduated from my master's, which was in gender studies and international development, um, I was looking for a research-based job coming out of that. And they're thin on the ground, so I temped for a long time in London. Well, not a long time, maybe I think eight or nine months. Um, and then this job came up that I was keeping an eye out for academic kind of research jobs. This research assistant job came up, looked perfect, interview seemed to go well. And uh, I, I had never moved to Brighton before then. I'd never been to Brighton before then. Okay. I didn't really know anything about it. But within a couple of months of living here, I'd just fallen in love with it. Really? Yeah. What, what were your first impressions of the place then? Why did you have that feeling? Well, so I moved here in January. Uh, so it was wet and yeah. cold. And I thought, my God, there's a lot of hills. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm Scottish, so I'm used to the wet and the cold. Um, I think it was just that very quickly like, I met a bunch of very kind of like-minded people. Um, so I, I've always kind of found there are a lot of great people in Brighton that I have 
been able to socialise and get to know very easily. Um, and of course, being gay myself, I think the fact that there is a large LGBTQ community here is fantastic and that is part of the reason why I love it. There is a real... Um, I, I think it's easy to forget when you live in Brighton um, that when you move away sometimes, that kind of sense of being very at ease, being kind of openly um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, queer, um, it feels very easy a lot of the time in Brighton. I, I, of course, less so for, for trans people, I, I suspect. Um, but when you when I go to other parts of the country, when I go back home to rural Scotland, when I go to Glasgow, even when I go to some parts of London, I suddenly realise, oh, actually, there is something a wee bit different about Brighton. It does mm -hmm. feel a wee bit easier there. There's a, almost a sense of... Um, of empowerment and being in Brighton in that sense, where you kind of you have this kind of feeling that you can't treat me like this. This is Brighton, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and indeed, that is something that Kath Brown has written about uh, herself quite extensively about that kind of, um, as we would call it in geography, that geographic imaginary of Brighton and the effects that has on people who live here. Well, I was going to ask about that. You kind of brought it up, and maybe we'll jump ahead a bit to. Um exploring LGBTQ communities outside the urban, which is one of your mm. research areas, isn't it? Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on that interest? Um, are you looking into how and if LGBTQ people might find a sense of community in rural areas or smaller mm. towns? Is that kind of what, it, what it's based around? Yeah, I'm certainly, uh, that, that's been a big part of my research. Um, this is something that uh, geographers uh, have been tackling quite a lot. I think there's been... Um, so the, the the initial work in geography around um, sexualities in gay, lesbian, bisexual and trans communities um, predominantly have to say gay men's communities, um, a bit of a limitation of the discipline there. Um, that work is pre predominantly focused around cities and urban centres uh, and what might make these uh, cities and urban centres uh, very attractive to, to gay communities and so on. Um, However, much more more recently, over the past, say, say 10, 15 years, there's been a lot more work focusing on uh, rural areas, small towns, areas outside the urban, uh, reacting against this idea that cities are the only place where LGBTQ people are, or that um, when people in rural areas or non-urban areas realise that they are LGBT, they suddenly think, right, I'm moving to a big city now. Mm. Um, actually, most of the kind of the literature over the past 10, 15 years has reacted against that, and I I'm very much kind of in that trend as well, which is thinking about the fact that there are LGBTQ people in rural areas, in small towns, who have no desire to move to a big city, who are very happy where they are. Yeah. They, they, of course, they, there are certain issues that they face, as there are for LGBTQ people in cities or anywhere else. Um, but yeah, that's certainly been a big shift within geographies of sexualities over the past 10 to 15 years against um, what some scholars have called a kind of metronormativity, okay. the assumption that not the city, but the metropolis, London, Manchester, New York, Tokyo, Los Angeles, that these are the sites of LGBTQ stuff and they're the only places that we need to study. Okay, so what does that kind of more rural-based research entail then? Is it, is it speaking to people about their perspectives of growing up LGBTQ in, in mm. rural areas, getting their getting their viewpoints on it? There, there's certainly a big part of that. Um, my research um, focused on kind of rural, non-urban, small town areas around Brighton, so okay. other parts of East Sussex, so Wealdon, Lewis, Eastbourne, Hastings, Rother. Um, and a lot of what I was interested in there was um, <clears throat> what is it like to form LGBTQ communities or to live your life as an LGBTQ person uh, near Brighton, 
but not actually in Brighton. Right. Uh, what might be the kind of effects of Brighton as this quote-unquote gay capital mm. that might spread beyond its boundaries and impact on community development there, yeah. as well as kind of um, uh, public policy and uh, partnership work to progress LGBTQ equalities there. Does that go back to what you were saying about assuming people that live around Brighton might want to flock to Brighton as it being an epicentre, but kind of resisting that a little yes, bit. Yes, absolutely, yeah. There is this assumption that um, if you are LGBTQ and you live near Brighton, well, of course, you'll just move to Brighton, but that's just not the case. Mm. Um, what I did find in my research, though, and something that, that I'm very interested in are these kind of ongoing movements in and out of Brighton. So I found that many people in those areas that I, I spoke to or who completed the questionnaire that I sent out, um, they may not live in Brighton, they may not work in Brighton, but they, they socialise in it quite regularly. Okay. Um, and so that was one of my kind of big takeaways from my PhD thesis was that when we think of these um, these big urban gay scenes like uh, Brighton, Brighton's not a big city, but I suppose we can talk it in that sense. Uh, also London, Manchester, places like this. Um, I think for a lot of those LGBTQ scenes there, and communities, they are in no small part comprised of people who live in rural, small town areas surrounding the city who dip into it now and then, mm. but don't actually live there. So I okay. think that's a really important takeaway. Yeah, I mean, zooming out a little bit, I suppose, this this concept of kind of social and cultural geography, and I think you described it, your supervisor said, was it imaginary? Imaginative geography. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, is that about mapping a sense of place through social and cultural kind of trends and demographics rather than more traditional I suppose people might have a traditional notion in their head of what geography entails and this seems to be a bit more not abstract but a bit more metaphysical than that yeah I think that's fair to say um for, for some aspects of it certainly um geography is I always describe it as a very promiscuous discipline so geography is interested in almost everything um and I, I fit myself within kind of a human geography side and that is really thinking about the interactions uh, between humans and their environments and the spaces and places in which they find themselves and which they create. Mm. Um, so geographers uh, come at things from a huge variety of perspectives but fundamentally we're interested in these kind of environments around us whether it's the human side or the or the physical side as well yeah. um, and within that kind of the, the social and cultural geography side of human geography we're interested in things like demographics, population movements um, that kind of thing as uh, policy making yeah. uh, as well as um, people's uh, geographic concepts that they use for example in the new uh, over the past few days, we've seen the word metropolitan de deployed a lot with a very specific set of meanings behind it. And geographers are very keen to unpick the kind of geographic meanings behind these kinds of terms. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that lies within human geography. Indeed, it's a broad church. You mentioned earlier kind of policy making. Um, and your PhD thesis was on partnerships between public services and LGBT communities mm -hmm. to improve LGBT equalities in rural, non-urban areas surrounding mm -hmm. Brighton, as you mentioned earlier. So are you very much aiming to have a kind of real world impact, for want of a better phrase, with this research in terms of changing public services and, and maybe even policy as well? Yeah, with the, I think with all of my research, I certainly go into thinking... Um I, I, I suppose I don't go into thinking like what is the impact of this because I think that term has become quite instrumentalised like it's um, 
it's almost kind of used as a tick box thing to say, can we demonstrate impact? Tick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's uh, almost become a metric for universities' benefits rather than to benefit the people who the research is supposed to benefit. So it's that part that's always in my mind, like how is this going to improve, um, for example, LGBTQ people's lives? Um, so certainly my, I know the, the work that I've done for my, my PhD thesis, um, as well as the work that I did with Kath Brown before that, and other research projects that I've done since have all been taken up by people's uh, community groups, uh, organisations to campaign for, advocate for better public services for LGBTQ people, okay. better healthcare for LGBTQ people, um, as well as just to kind of develop understandings of what's actually happening. And, and would you say that your work does have that direct political and social edge to it, or, or is it more a case that that's like a, a good byproduct of what the work entails, I suppose, or a bit of both? <laughs> Varies depending on project to project, I would say. Um, Certainly the ones we've been discussing, uh, my work in LGBT Hastings and Rother, uh, my work on uh, the Count Me In Two project, which is the Brighton-based LGBTQ project that brought me to Brighton originally. Um, Those were very clearly geared towards having some kind of policy relevance, where where I didn't just write academic articles for them, we, we... published reports that could be taken up by community groups, by the public sector, <clears throat> and so on, so that they could be actively used to, to progress positive social change. Okay. Um, the kind of work that I've moved into more recently <clears throat> around the uh, bear subculture of a gay, bisexual and queer men, I suppose has less of a... I'm not thinking about that in terms of a potential policy relevance, but I do hope for it and intend for it to... Uh, inform the way that kind of bare social and community groups are run, for example. Yeah, well, let's discuss that because um, uh, this is this is some of your recent work, which has been based around the complexities of the bare community, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, in a society which abhors fat, which you've said mm-hmm. in your own words. Um, and you called the study bare space or the project bare space. Um, mm-hmm. Could you give us a bit of context about that and how it started? I suppose. <laughs> Sure, yeah. Um, so I suppose I should probably describe what bears are first. Yeah, uh, probably, yeah. So I'm not talking about the animal. Uh, so it's quite difficult to describe, but bears are a... Some people describe it as a subculture. Some would describe it as a kind of identity category within gay. Um, it's predominantly gay, bisexual and queer men, um, some of whom are also trans men, um, who are, tend to be bigger, uh, hairier, uh, skew older as well. Um, I think there's certainly sometimes a, an association of a particular kind of masculinity there to, or at least a performance of a kind of kind of masculinity. Um, and that is a large and growing gay subculture, a, a time when uh, the old gay leather scenes are dying off, for example. Um, Bear is, although I, I think perhaps in some ways they've, they've been picking themselves up a lot recently, um, but Bear has... Um, taken over the world in some senses you can find bear communities throughout the Americas Uh, certainly it's fundamentally started in North America but you can find it throughout South America uh, in uh, Istanbul in Turkey in the UK across Europe in China in Japan so um, I'm interested first of all that there's this kind of large and growing global subculture but then from my perspective um, I'm interested in bears and fatness. So as a, a fat guy myself who is getting fatter over time, as the majority of people uh, will do in their lives, um, I'm interested in thinking about what bear um, 
communities, organisations, events, the spaces that they create might offer um, for fatter, gay, bisexual and queer men who often are very marginalised in the kind of mainstream LGBTQ scenes and even in the kind of the more radical queer scenes which espouse a great deal more body positivity, um, certainly even in them you have a critical mass of aggressively thin people. Um, so I, I am very interested in finding spaces that feel good and empowering for fat, fat guys. And would you hope that, that research would go some way towards um, going against that kind of marginalisation that you described earlier? Yeah, that's very much the, the, the impetus behind it. Um, certainly, I don't think that bear scenes communities are perfect in any sense. Uh, I have, I would be the first to go on a half an hour rant about why they're all terrible. Um, but um, I still think that they offer a great deal of value as well. And um, my intention is certainly to use my findings to kind of feedback to the community groups and organisations who I've worked with in this research um, to give them some ways in which they might um, change up their operating methods, um, how they're advertising things, the languages that they use, how the spaces are created and so on, okay. um, to, to make them more accommodating to a variety of different body types, but um, to fat guys in particular. And I've been really pleased to see that all of the ones that I've spoken to have been really positively engaging with that. Okay, and is this bound to any specific geographical area or is this a... Yeah. It is, yeah, it's a UK specific one. Okay. Um, for, for a number of reasons, I mean, obviously for kind of manageability of the project when there's only me uh, doing it but also I think that uh, their cultures and communities are uh, differ geographically so I think the kind of bear communities and groups in the UK are not the same as those in America and they're not the same as those in France or in those in Istanbul or in those in Tokyo or those in Shanghai um, so I, I think it is really important as a, as a geographer mm. not to just think about the spaces that bears create, but where those spaces are. And is there a, a kind of urban-rural divide of the kind that you mentioned earlier with this kind of Yeah, definitely. Um, certainly the kind of spaces that I have been to. So I've worked with bears and been to bear community groups and events and pubs and bars and so on. In The ones that I've done are in Brighton, in London, in Edinburgh in Manchester and in Belfast, all of which are, are cities, um, different, very different cities, I would argue. Uh, but yeah, n nevertheless, I, I certainly found that uh, when I did a kind of review of what kind of potential bear spaces were in the UK, there's no getting away from the fact that the ones where people tend to physically meet up mm. does tend to be in urban areas. Um, there's quite a lot of stuff that does cover people in more rural areas. Uh, so there are groups that covers like the uh, the East Midlands, uh, Yorkshire, um, places out in the uh, southwest. Uh, but those tend to be much more sporadic. They tend to be much more online with uh, the very rare kind of meetup. And that might not even be in that particular area. They might all go away to Blackpool or something. Right, okay. Um, yeah, so, so I think there is kind of no getting away from the fact that it kind of it, it tends to be focused around cities. Mm -hmm. But understandably, this is a minority population of a minority population. Like the, the numbers for uh, bears in rural areas is... Uh, less than a tenth of the LGBTQ population there. Mm. Okay, and we'll put a link in the uh, in the podcast description to uh, Bear Space if anyone wants to find out more. Mm -hmm. um, and turning on to your teaching, then you mentioned mm. you mentioned the phrases high energy and enthusiasm in relation <laughs> to your teaching style. That's right. Well, I've got a pile <laughs> of coffee with me now, and I think that helps a lot. <laughs> 
that was um, that was on your research page. Uh, but how would you describe your your teaching approach more generally? Um, I yeah, I, I do try to be quite energetic in the classroom. I well remember being a student and uh, finding it very difficult to concentrate for long periods of time. So I, th I think that is really important. Um, I teach in a, a bunch of different stuff. So I teach on uh, human research methodologies within geography. So I do things like interview design, uh, eth ethnographic work and so on, um, uh, questionnaire design. Uh, I teach on some urban geography work. Um, but uh, the the main th thing that I fo I try to focus on my kind of specialty is um, on gender and uh, sexuality and bodies, and so I, I teach a third year human geography module called Gender, Sex and the Body, okay. where we explicitly go into those, those issues. Um, so I've been teaching that this semester. Um, I, I love teaching it. Um, it's, it's always fantastic to be able to teach your specialty. I'm very grateful to the university and for my school, School of Environment and Technology in particular, for letting me teach something which certainly is not seen as classic geography by any means. Mm. Um, and also a lot of that module is, um, it deals with, with cutting-edge contemporary social issues and it's uh, it can be quite explicit um so i i when i teach about sex for example i'm not teaching about it in the abstract i don't can i swear in the podcast should i not swear in the podcast um <laughs> i'll not swear <laughs> in the podcast not, yeah. but so I, I i do um we do talk about actual sexual practices in the classroom why geographers what might want to think about the practices of sex and sexuality as opposed to just thinking about identities communities and populations okay um yeah, so, so the, the, that's something that's really imp important in that work. And I think the students, well, are they are, I think, a little, little bit taken aback by that initially. Because when you think about kind of academic teaching, uh, on the, the kind of trajectory that most students go through, you, you never really get any kind of... Um, you never really get presented with the idea that the a actual sexual practices and sexual communities might be worth researching might be worthy of scholarly attention. Mm. Usually the only kind of time students get that kind of stuff is um, through the perspective of sexual health. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's, yeah. that's really their only introduction to it. So I think even the kind of study of sex and sexuality from an academic perspective is quite new to a lot of our students. Is this a relatively new module then, or is it new? So it was pioneered by uh, Kath Brown when she was oh, here, okay, and yeah. uh, uh, myself and my, my colleague Paul Gilchrist have kind of revised that um, just this year, actually. Um, so yeah, it's something that students re respond to very well. It's okay. relevant. It's immediately relevant to everybody's lives because even if even if somebody has no sexual desire whatsoever, if they're completely asexual, you still understand that sexuality and sexual desire and eroticism um, informs our daily lives mm. and the kind of everyday nature of our daily lives so heavily. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of a lot of the stuff that my teaching um, focuses on. Okay. Um, as well as I, I present students with a lot of work on um, feminist geographies and uh, feminist act activism and so on as a kind of big part of my work as well. And would you try and implement kind of uh, relevant news stories around gender into the, into the curriculum as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah um, which is fairly easy to do because you go on to any, <laughs> like, I don't think a day goes by when there's not something uh, gender related in the news, mm. um, whether that be about um, equal pay for women and what the kind of complexities of that are, um, or if it's about uh, trans issues emerging in the media, or with regard to sex and sexuality, um, you can kind of see 
things like our single mothers being demonised as a classic way in which women's sexuality is kind of wielded against them. How, mm. how dare they have lots of children and not not be in a kind of married relationship and so on. Yeah. So it, it is present in so many things, even when we don't expect it to be. Indeed. Okay. Uh, well, we end the... Oh, no, I was going to ask before this... Um, you might have answered it already, actually, but what do you find most rewarding about your job? It might be on the research side, it might be on the teaching side. Mm. I understand that there's a lot of things that you might find rewarding, but is there one thing that stands out in particular? Um, oh, that's a good question. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, I, I, it's, for me, it's, it's both the teaching and the research. I, I do enjoy teaching. Um, I, I was teaching before I came to the university in, um, in, in, in high schools doing foreign language teaching. Um, and I really enjoy... Um, presenting students with stuff that they can find useful in their lives that gives yeah. them a new perspective on what's happening in their life and that is really what I want to get out of my kind of teaching on that. Okay. And then from the research side, um, it's it's just so wonderful to be at a university, like any university would offer this I imagine, but it's wonderful to be at university because you have access to the most cutting edge research on anything you are interested in, mm. which is something that I always try to remind my students of, whatever they are interested in. If they're interested in football, if they're interested in popular music, if they're interested in going out clubbing, if they're going interested in going out to the beach, all of that, there is research on it, the most cutting edge research on all of their kind of the practices that they have in their daily lives, the things that they're interested in. That is the most wonderful thing about being at university. Yeah, that yeah. is the wealth of, the, of knowledge of the world is at your fingertips. Mm. And um, yeah, certainly I'm at the kind of stage now where I've been at university for so long, I don't know how I would live without that. <laughs> I don't know how I would go by and not just think, I'm going to type this in and yeah. see, what, see what has come out about it recently. Access to JSTOR or something. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's an unbelievable resource um, that, yeah, I, I, I'm incredibly grateful for. Okay, great. Well, we end the podcast with uh, five quick-fire lifestyle questions. Oh, God, okay. I don't know if you knew about this. In fact, you probably didn't, but <laughs> no, here we go. Go, go ahead. Uh, they're, quite, they're quite straightforward. Um, what advice would you give to your 16-year-old self? Uh, uh, oh, my God. Um, it's... Oh, um, it, it's okay to move away. Okay. Yeah, it's... I know I keep saying, oh, not all people in rural areas move to urban areas. I, I didn't move to an urban area, but I did move away from from my village and I was nervous about it. I moved to another country, Japan, and lived there for four years. Okay. And that was a big step and it was a good one to take. All right. What is your favourite place in Sussex? Um, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't Brighton. Um, okay. Yep, I love being in Brighton. Brilliant. All right. Um, describe your perfect weekend. Not a question as such, but... Mm. Um, Honestly, sitting in my pants playing PS4. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like the honesty. Uh, and what are you currently reading, watching, or listening to? You can have all the three of those or one if you want. Oh, God. Uh, what am I reading, watching, and listening to? I am watching the new series of She-Ra on uh, Netflix, and I am reading a book uh, called Unlimited Intimacy, which is about uh, sex between gay, sex cultures between gay men. So uh, an interesting kind of split there, but a kind mm. of kid's cartoon and then <laughs> kind of like hardcore sexual practices. And <laughs> uh, listening to anything stand up? Um, I am listening to a lot of Gaelic podcasts because I'm learning uh, Scots Gaelic at the moment, okay. uh, which is not a kind of indication of how independent this is going to go, uh, <laughs> but I just find it very interesting. Okay, and how's it coming along? Are you managing to develop your, your skills? Uh, a, a little bit, but I don't know how to say that in Gaelic, so ah. please don't ask me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly then, what are your, who are your three uh, fantasy dinner party guests? They oh. can be alive, dead, fictional, whatever you want. Um... 
Honestly, it would just it would just be my three best friends. Yes. Like I, uh, yeah, we, we would probably have a better time than having some random stranger there who I idolise. <laughs> never meet your idols. Never works out. That is a more sensible answer than inviting quite egotistical, high-profile yeah. people, probably. Yeah. And then feeling under pressure all the time uh, to yeah. kind of perform for them. No, no, no. no. Great. All right. Thanks, Nick. Thank you very much. Cheers. Many thanks to Dr. McGlynn, and you can find all of our podcasts by searching for University of Brighton on Spotify, Apple, and many more listening apps. See you next time.